It's not a true story. But the details in the story are all based on fact. And I believe they'll help us to understand this book. We're going to study together, God willing, over this year in the evenings. And particularly the verses that open it that we're going to look at together. So, if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. The story takes place around the year 55 in the Christian era. Androcles was not a happy man. He never wanted to come here in the first place. But someone had to oversee the family's business in the largest commercial centre in the Greek world. And Androcles was the oldest son. And Corinth was the place. He'd been here a couple of months and Corinth was everything he feared and worse. Five times larger than his native Athens, it had none of its cultural history. The Romans wisely, in Androcles' opinion, had raised the original city of Corinth to rubble some 200 years ago as punishment for leading a rebellion against the empire. Unwisely, again in the opinion of Androcles, Julius Caesar had rebuilt it a hundred years later as a Roman colony. Now Corinth was just over a hundred years old, with a large cosmopolitan population. Of who knew exactly how many? Some people said quarter of a million people, some people said three quarters of a million. Two-thirds of the population were slaves, and the rest were a mobile mixture of sailors and business people, taking advantage of Corinth's two ports, which had a worldwide trade, and government officials trying to bring some semblance of order, civic life and trade. Plus also a huge number of people who flocked to Corinth from the four corners of the Roman Empire. Fortune hunters drawn to the prospect of making money like flies to a carcass, and pleasure seekers come to spend money on a holiday from morality. Even the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, and hosted every two years by Corinth, were a huge disappointment to Androcles, who discovered they were now degraded by professionalism and cheating and quackery of every kind, far removed from the noble ideal which true Greeks like the Athenians prized. The city itself was a disappointment to Androcles. Yes, enclosed by a six-mile wall intersected with huge towers, the buildings were impressive and large, especially the huge city centre marketplace, or Agora as it was called, the great theatre which seated 18,000 people, the concert hall that seated 3,000 people, the ancient temple to Apollo, one of the few buildings that had survived the Roman destruction, and the temple of Aphrodite, built on the Acropolis, which towered over the city 1,500 feet. But even that was a facade for immorality being serviced, one writer estimated, by 1,000 cult prostitutes. No wonder there was a Greek verb, to Corinthianize, which meant to commit fornication or debauchery. And the temple kind of symbolised for Androcles everything about Corinth, all brash and shallow. No real culture or tradition, even any serious philosophy, such as the Greeks prized to underlie it. So, Androcles was not a happy man. But there was something else that had made him even more unhappy about Corinth. You see, Androcles was a member of a small but rapidly growing band of people commonly known as the followers of the way. 
long dissatisfied, even with sophisticated Greek religion, searching for what he didn't know, symbolized by one of the many altars in Athens, to the unknown God, Androcles had heard a visitor to his city speak on that very subject to the ruling council of Athens, known as the Areopagus. The visitor was a Jew named Paul, and Androcles had been in the audience, and he'd heard him speak about one Jesus, whom he claimed was God's Son, come to earth, crucified by the Romans, but raised from the dead, attested by many witnesses. And although many of his fellow listeners had sneered at the message, Androcles and a few others had wanted to hear more. And on hearing more, a few of them, including Androcles, had been gripped by the gospel, as Paul called his message, and had repented from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. For Androcles, it was the end of all his searching, the start of a new and exciting life, a living relationship with a living God, one that had grown and developed as he and his fellow believers in Athens had met together week by week to pray and praise God and to study the Hebrew Scriptures. But then Androcles' father insisted that he must go to Corinth and there could be no argument. Still, his disappointment was tempered by one thought. He knew that Paul had travelled the same route several years before. After leaving Athens, Paul had gone to Corinth, in fact had stayed there 18 months, and in that unlikely soil, a Christian church had been planted. So after arriving in Corinth and settling in, the first thing Androcles decided to do was to go and look at the local Christian community that met together on the Lord's Day in the home of one of the wealthier members. And what he discovered absolutely appalled him. Arriving for the agape, the Christian love feast of a good meal, followed by breaking bread and drinking wine, symbolizing remembering the death and sacrifice of Jesus their Lord, Androcles arrived and discovered the meal had already started and there was no food left for him, or the poorer members who arrived later. In fact, the welcome he received at the church was distinctly frosty. And when the time for worship started, it was utter chaos. Several people stood up and spoke in strange languages a practice not unfamiliar to Androcles, but not all at the same time, and interrupting one another. He could make little sense of it, and he gained little benefit from it. It seemed to him that the participants were more interested in promoting themselves than in edifying one another. And that impression was reinforced for Androcles when he discovered that the church was riddled with cliques and factions, each struggling for ascendancy in the church. To such a level, there were even several court cases between members of the church which were being tried by the local magistrates. He also learned that as well as being part of the local Christian community, many of the Corinthian Christians also belonged to trade guilds, which involved them in participating in special ritual meals at the local temples, eating food sacrificed to idols. And no one seemed to worry about it or have any qualms of conscience. And perhaps worst of all, the church was rife with immorality. To such an extent that one of the men in the church was actually living and sleeping with his father's wife. And no one seemed to raise any objections. In fact, it was seen by many as a source of pride, the kind of liberty that the followers of Jesus allowed. And that was why Androcles was unhappy. What should he do? Where could he go? There were no other Christians in Corinth. One thing made him stay. 
a small delegation of three men had been sent by the church in Corinth to visit Paul who was now resident in Ephesus in order to raise some of the issues that had caused Androcles so much concern and to ask his advice and rumour had it that they'd recently returned with a letter from Paul which would be read on the Lord's Day to the whole congregation so Androcles was filled with hope as he made his way there surely Paul, the Paul he knew would have something to say about what was happening in this church in Corinth the church he had planted the story is fictitious I made it up but the background is not and the letter is not it's been preserved down the centuries and we read this evening what that congregation in that situation would have heard read to them the first letter from Paul the first that's recorded anyway that we have so we read the first nine verses Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus for in him you've been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed he will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful this is what Paul wrote and I guess an Androcles and anyone who knew the situation in the church in Corinth would have been surprised at how Paul begins this letter to them yes there are enormous problems in this church and we'll see how Paul addresses them later but that is not where he starts his focus is not on what the Corinthian Christians have done and are but on what God has done and is what God is doing for them and in them and what he will do in them we call this series Keeping First Things First for the big problem with the Christians in Corinth was that they got things out of perspective and the first and most important thing they got out of perspective was that the church in Corinth was as Paul states in his greeting here in verse 2 the church of God in Corinth and that casts a wholly different light on how we view the church in Corinth and how we view the church in Edinburgh or the church in any city which bears the name of the Lord Jesus Christ you see as we study this letter together we'll discover that there are many striking parallels between Corinth and Edinburgh maybe you noticed some of them as I described the background to Corinth but we'll also see that the church in Corinth had many similarities with the church particularly in the West in our day and like Androcles we may despair of the situations we find ourselves in and may be battered and bruised some of you over many years 
we decide to give up on the church, though we say not our faith. An increasing number of people in our country are doing so. All the surveys and reports indicate it to be so. And I want to say, although I understand more extensively and more deeply than probably almost all of you the terrible things that happen in churches and the awful things that Christians sometimes do to one another. You cannot give up on the church for one simple reason. The church is God's idea, God's project, God's plan and you cannot give up on it because he is totally committed to it and thankfully totally committed to us if we're followers of Jesus Christ. And from God's perspective, the church is in Christ Jesus, as our title today indicates, the perfect church. So look with me at the first nine verses of this letter. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, and I've given a list of books you might like to read, or at least choose one and study it together with me over these, and John over these months, David Pryor writes, If the first nine verses of this letter were excised from the text, it would be impossible for any reader to come to anything but a fairly pessimistic view of the church in Corinth. But these nine verses are not excised, they are there. This is what Paul actually wrote when he wrote to this church, knowing the background, knowing its situation. And that is where we must begin this evening. And we can summarise three things about those who belong to the church of God in Corinth and everywhere. First of all, they are called by God. Did you notice in the reading how often the word Paul appeared? Paul describes himself as Paul, an apostle, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm a messenger sent by Jesus Christ. It wasn't some sort of office and role that he aspired to or was elevated to or the fulfilment of some boyhood dream to start some kind of religion. No, he hated Jesus Christ and his followers. He did all he could to suppress them and persecute them. What brought about the change in his life was that God intervened in his life. A call came from a cloudless sky on a road to Damascus and Jesus Christ called him personally. And it was this call which had taken him despite incredible difficulties for the last 20 years around the Mediterranean world with this message, this good news, this gospel about Jesus Christ. And it was this call of God that had brought him to the city of Corinth, where he stayed for 18 months, as he had proclaimed the gospel to the population and assured them of its truth. And from this emerged a church in Corinth. But it was God who had called the church in Corinth into being. The existence of the church in Corinth was not due to Paul's rhetorical gifts. He reminds them of this in the second chapter. If you look at chapter 2 in front of you, look what he says. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest not on men's wisdom but on God's power. 
So the Corinthians in this church had become Christians because God had called them. They were, Paul says, also called, called to be holy. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. The word holy here means set apart for God's service. Belonging to God, different from everyone else. Later in the letter, Paul will talk about holiness in terms of moral behaviour. But here he's not talking about their condition, he's talking about their position. That they are called by God, set apart for his service, belonging to him. And he says that's not only true of the Christians in Corinth, it is true of Christians everywhere, along with Christians everywhere. You Christians in Corinth, says Paul, are called to be holy together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Christians are those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But our call on him is always a response to his first call to us. He called, we responded. And our call and response is not just an individual matter, important though that is, but is along with people everywhere throughout the world who together form the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word translated church here, it's a Greek word, ekklesia, from which the root is the same word, to call. It means the people called out by God. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word is used to the people of Israel, the assembly of God's people called together. You see, this is not some new idea by God. God's plan has always been to call people out to himself. This morning we thought of Abraham. God called him, said, I'll make you a great nation and people. Abraham wasn't seeking God, God was seeking him. So the church is God's idea. It is part of his great plan for the world. It does not depend, as we will see, on the Corinthian Christians and their little factions all seeking for ascendancy. But on God and his call, the church is God's idea. Now the lesson is clear. If the church is God's plan, then belonging to his church is of the utmost importance. And being part of his people is the greatest privilege imaginable. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter, writing to people who, like the Corinthians, came from a Gentile, not Jewish background, affirms this amazing truth. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him, not the word, who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the first thing I want to ask you this evening is, have you heard God's call and have you responded to it? In repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, you are ineligible for church membership. Because belonging to a church is not a matter of attending a service or even going through the motions of reading the Bible and seeking to pray. It is responding to God's call. But if you have, and many of us would claim to have done that this evening, if you have responded to God's call, then God has called you, as verse 9 says, into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a plural. He has called you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and he is our Lord, not just your Lord, not just my Lord. And so the greeting which follows in verse 3 takes up this theme. Paul takes the tradition, traditional Greek and Hebrew greetings and Christianizes them. God's grace is a merited favour has been shown to us. His peace, that wholeness, 
That complete well-being is promised by God the Father to his children. So if you enjoy these privileges and belong to Christ, then you share them with other Christians throughout the world. People from all over the world. And whenever you come to live in a particular place, because we're a very mobile community these days, aren't we? Whenever if you are a Christian and you come to live in a particular place, the first thing you do, like Andrew please, after settling in, is you look for God's people. And you identify yourself with them. Because they're family. It's great. Some of us occasionally discover that you've got a long-lost relative you never knew about. Wow, you can't wait to meet them. A bit apprehensive. You say, wow, I never knew about this relative. And you go and find them. And you talk and you say, wow, we've got a lot in common. And wow, we even look like each other. Whatever it might be. Now, here's an amazing thing. When you become a Christian, wherever you go in the world, you'll find family members. It's fantastic. People from different backgrounds. But we all share a common experience of fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is amazing. I've lived and worked on three continents. One of the greatest privilege of all. You go out as I did into some remote Indian village and you find there are believers in Jesus Christ. You do as we did. We lived out in a bush village in Nigeria. And you meet with people. You can't understand a word that they're saying at the beginning. But you meet together and you hear them singing God's praises and you join in. And there is a oneness, a unity, a belonging to God's people. So I ask you a second question. The first is, have you responded in repentance and faith to God's call? The second question is, have you identified with a local church? So, let me be absolutely practical. If you are a Christian living in Edinburgh for any length of time, you should belong to a local church. Whatever system they have of identifying those who belong, and it varies between churches, you need to belong and become accountable. If you live in Edinburgh and don't belong to a local church and you're worshipping here, then after this evening service we have one of our regular membership information meetings. You can find out what belonging to this church involves before you commit yourself to it. But I always say to people who come to those meetings, and the numbers vary from 2 to 20 or more, I always say to people, if Charlotte Chapel is not the church for you, then God has another local congregation where you will fit, where you belong, where God wants you to be, as we'll see, to use the gifts that God has given you. That is the first thing, and it really focuses on the past, called by God. But Paul also talks about the present. And he says, every genuine church, secondly, is enriched by God. You see that in verses 4 to 7. As you all know, if you live in Scotland... A project is well underway to erect a new building for the Scottish Parliament. I think, it, I think it's a bit more advanced than that. I hope it is anyway. What you'll also know is that it's costing a lot more than everybody originally planned. I heard the other day it was planned to cost 40 million. It's now up to 348 million and rising. Questions are being asked about whether Scotland can afford it and whether the executive has the will to see it through. I have no desire especially coming from England originally, to enter into this debate. What I can say with absolute assurance is that God has both the will and desire to complete the church building project he has begun because he is building with people. And what I can also say with the assurance of 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 to 7, along with many of the promises in the Bible, is that God has provided all the resources for his people to be the people that he intends. He has provided 
all that you need. Look again at verses 4 to 7. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And despite all the problems in this church, Paul again surprises us by saying that he gives thanks to God for the fact that they've been enriched in every way and do not lack any spiritual gift. This is even more surprising because many of the problems in the church in Corinth were centred around the use and abuse of spiritual gifts. Gordon Fee, in the most exhaustive commentary, if you want a good commentary, it's 900 pages, it's well worth reading, this is what he writes. What is remarkable here is the Apostle's ability to give thanks to God for the very things in the church that because of their abuses are also causing him grief. Unlike many contemporary Christians whose tendency is to domesticate the faith by eliminating anything that could be troublesome, the Apostle recognises that the problem lies not in their gifts but in their attitude towards the gifts. Precisely because these gifts come from God, Paul is bound to give thanks for them. After all, they are good things that have gone sour. So likewise, we need, when we come together, we need to give thanks to God because he's given us all that we need to be the church that he intended. Instead of complaining about the church and what we lack, as though God were like a reluctant chancellor or treasurer who is unwilling or at best grudging in his provision of what he's promised, we should rejoice and give thanks that God has given his church all that we need to be the people that he intended. And we should use and not abuse the gifts that he has given us. But we should never forget that these are gifts of grace. Very close connection here. Look at verse 4. Paul gives thanks for his grace. God, thanks God for the grace given. The Greek word is charis. For every spiritual gift, and the Greek word is charisma, from which we get charisma, which means something totally different, but never mind. What he's saying is that every gift that you've been given, if you're a member of God's people, is a gift of grace. You didn't earn it. There is no Christian equivalent of pop stars, praise the Lord. Well, you make a fortune because of the gifts that you just happen to have been born with. No, they're all gifts of grace. Later on in chapter 4, if you turn over the page at verse 7, look what he says. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And rather than using their gifts for their own self-promotion and benefit, they're to be used, in fact they can only be used effectively for the benefit of other members of the church or body. And Paul develops this theme of the church as a body, with many body parts, and all of them are necessary. But you can only function as a body part within a body. An amputated hand is of no use unless it's connected to the arm, and through that to the brain and the head. More of that later when we come to the series. But here God's foc his focus is on God. And he says, God has given his people all the gifts they need, in particular, if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 5, he talks about two kinds of gifts. Speaking gifts, gifts that cover telling the truth, and knowledge, knowledge gifts that focus on understanding the truth. And he says the very fact that God has given you these gifts is a proof, a testimony, is a confirmation that you belong to Christ. So, let's be practical again. If you are a genuine Christian, then God has gifted you. He's given you at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. Charisma. 
charismata. So, what gifts has God given you? You've been a Christian, maybe a, a week, a month, six months, a year, maybe ten years. Do you know what the gifts are that God has given you? And if so, how and where are you using them? Together with Christians, and only with Christians, can you, we, plural, become the church of God in Corinth or in Edinburgh? Now, of course, if you are a Christian, you can choose to withdraw from the local church. You can remain as a spectator or critic on the outside. But then you are contributing to the problem by depriving the church of the very gifts God gave you to be used within the church. You are like a centre forward standing on the terraces complaining that your team never scores any goals when you're the guy who should be out there playing and scoring them. But you may say, that's all very good but you don't know my church and the problems in my church. Too true I don't but I do know the problems in the church in Corinth. And I know that Paul didn't abandon it as a lost cause but instead begins by giving thanks to God for it and for all he has done for the Corinthian Christians and given them in Christ. And so should we. Any pastor knows the problems in a church far more than the congregation. Because each of you knows only your own problems and the pastor usually knows most people's problems or a good number of them. And there are a lot more than you think. But don't give up. If God didn't give up on the church in Corinth, and what I described at the beginning in my introduction is perfectly true of what was happening in the church of Corinth. If God didn't give up on the church, then you shouldn't give up because God has given us all that we need. He's enriched us in every way. So the past, called by God. The present, enriched by God. Thirdly and finally, Paul turns to the future, kept by God. Notice how verse 7 concludes. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. The Corinthians have every spiritual gift they need, but they have not yet arrived because Christ has not yet arrived or been revealed. One of the pictures used for the return of Christ. The day when everyone will see the truth about him, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And the gifts they've received must be used and not abused so that the church can function and live as God intends. To use another New Testament picture, God is preparing the church like a bride being prepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. But looking at the church in Corinth, let alone the church in our day and ourselves personally, we wonder, will we ever be ready for the return of Christ? And I tell you this, if we're dependent on us, we may as well give up today. Praise the Lord, it is not. For once again, Paul shifts the focus from the church and the Christian to God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord with a note of future assurance. Look what he says in verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who has called and gifted his church will also keep his church strong to the end. The verb translated there, keep strong, is the same word as confirm in verse 6. It means to establish something, to make it firm. And it came to be used in the Greek world of guaranteeing a legal contract, that someone came along and said, my word is my bond, I will fulfil what I have promised. Now here's the great thing. God has promised to fulfill in you and in his church what he promised from the beginning. Paul writes the same thing in Philippians. Confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. God will never abandon his church building project. He will never say it's costing more than he anticipated. 
He will never give up in despair because it isn't working out as he planned. No, he's committed to the future glorious completion for when Christ appears, we read his people will be blameless. You will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because in Christ and in him alone you will stand before God and be acquitted and his people will be gathered in, his full people, complete. And the reason we can be sure about this is because God is faithful. Verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Another commentator, Craig Blomberg, writes, God will remain faithful to his promises to ultimately perfect his people, however immature at times they seem to be. Now, if Paul could have such confidence about God's ability and commitment to the church in Corinth, we can have equal confidence about God's commitment to the church in our day, the church in Edinburgh, even about ourselves. If God has called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in God. And rather this being a cause for complacency, what if God's going to do it, I have no need to bother, it is a spur to action, for urgency, to put things right, so that we'll be ready for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and eagerly waiting rather than dreading the time when Christ will be revealed. You know, as Christians, we have a great future prospect. Thanks only to God's faithfulness. And it's so easy to dwell on all the things that drag you down and depress you about yourself, let alone other Christians. But there's this great future prospect that God will keep his church strong to the end and you'll be blameless on the day when Christ appears. What a hope. So the focus on these opening verses, not on the Corinthians, what they have done, but on God and what he has done and is doing through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus. Did you notice in nine verses, Jesus is mentioned nine times? You can count them when you get home. Take my word for it. God is fully committed to his church and to us. And the greatest proof we know that God is committed to his church is that he gave his son for that very purpose. Do you remember the promise Jesus made when he was on earth? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And in order to ensure the future of his church, Jesus paid the price through his own death to purchase a people for God. The price that he paid. No wonder that that is the theme song of heaven. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And as I said this morning, if this is what heaven will be like, then our role on earth is to be the people of God, to use the gifts he has given us, assured of the future prospect that awaits us. And here on earth we begin, as it were, the choir practice for the praise of the redeemed in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lord Jesus Christ.